Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Latest figures from the central bank suggest that impressive growth is to come for the Irish economy, but with the cost of living continuing to climb, who will reap the benefits? The place of single-sex schools in modern Irish society comes under scrutiny. Does gender-based segregation in education do more harm than good? We want to hear your views. I think it's good to help them develop personal relationships and stuff like that and even respect for one another um, across different genders and stuff. What do the lads learn, what do the girls learn, do you think, from, from the co-education? <clears throat> Very little, I'd say. Very little. And we hear from Una Ring, whose terrifying personal experience has led her to campaign for legislation that would criminalise stalking as a standalone offence. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag TonightVMTV. In its latest quarterly bulletin, the central bank has forecasted strong growth in the domestic economy for 2022. But as inflation surges at the fastest pace in more than 20 years, what use are the positive headlines if they make no dent in the spiralling cost of living? On my first panel tonight, entrepreneur and founder of Moxie Loves, Pamela Laird, CEO of Dublin Town, Richard Guiney, consumer journalist Sinead Ryan, and via Skype, economics correspondent for Virgin Media News, Paul Colgan. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, big news out of the central bank uh, today, Paul, insofar as they're painting a very rosy picture. Are they saying the boom is back? And if so, who's benefiting? Who's doing well out of all of this? Well, the, the economy is absolutely flying so much. In fact, the central bank has had to upgrade its forecasts for this year and next year. They think it's going to grow in a much more robust way, in a much faster fashion than they had thought just even at the back end of last year. So in this sort of scenario where you're coming back from a pandemic in living memory, we don't know what to expect, but it seems it's going to have a couple of characteristics and soar away inflation is one of those. And what we've seen already is some evidence that certain workers in certain sectors, those very profitable parts of our economy, are doing quite well and they're actually they're seeing their wages increase because their employers are in a position to do so. But it isn't as broad-based just yet in terms of wage inflation. So there are people who are losing out, who are having to contend with much higher energy bills, which we all know about. They're at the raw end of inflation and they're not seeing perhaps the same wage inflation that people at the other end are seeing. So what the Centre Bank said today was, we expect the economy to grow very well. We expect to see an extra 170,000 jobs or thereabouts being added back into the economy over the coming period. And eventually, most sectors within the economy will catch up when it comes to wages. It'll be fairly broadly based. But for the time being, it seems that some people will be at the raw end of things and they will need some sort of assistance through this period of time. The government obviously has 
introduced a hundred euro electricity credit, but that's not going to really deal with what the central bank governor said earlier this week was spectacular growth in energy prices. And we're potentially in for much higher growth over the coming months, depending on what happens in Ukraine. Yeah, so overall, you know, it is quite a mixed picture, but as I say, central banks seem very optimistic about the, the economy really bouncing back um, following on from the pandemic. Pamela, from your point of view as a business owner, when you hear this news, does it relate to you? Can you do you feel that you're in that space? Is it positive? Is it as optimistic as, as they're making out? You know what, I think I, overall, I think it is optimistic and positive. I think it's great that there is that sort of surge in the economy again. And I think that's what we need, that positive news again. Mm. But I think boots on the ground as, an, as a business owner, I think it's not always reflective of, of what it's like to run a business. Uh, for example, time, you won't be able to get, a lot of business won't be able to get the time back. You know, for instance, we're nearly five years in business and the supports that are available as a startup, you know, are soon to expire. And there are a lot of businesses that have missed that window. And I think there aren't as many supports to kind of get you through the next hump. And everyone has pivoted and I'm so blessed to be in the health and beauty industry, which obviously is doing spectacular and has been able to trade throughout the lockdown and throughout COVID. But the momentum that we had in year three in business is not the same as year five when you put a pandemic in the middle. So I think it is definitely difficult for a business to, to trade through and bounce back. Yeah, those last years, Richard, that is a huge deal, isn't it, for business? When you look at um, Dublin city centre, the footfall being so critical, like you're, we're, not, we're not seeing that recover as yet, are we? No, we haven't uh, recovered like up to uh, the last week. We were up. We we're only still just over two thirds of what we were in 2019. Now Saturday, we we went over 95 percent of the 2019 figure. So that was obviously very encouraging um, for a city centre. Obviously, not having our office workers is a huge uh, impact. So the Monday to Friday footfall is way down compared to even the weekends. So I think we are going to be in a period of adjustment um, and there is global uncertainty as, as uh, Paul was mentioning, you know, the whole Russia-Ukraine situation and all of that uncertainty is still there as well as, you know, how COVID is going to, uh, is, is going to pan out over the next couple of months. So I think, you know, there is pent up savings. I think people want to get back to socialising. They want to get back to entertainment. So I think we will see the economy picking up. I think we will see people spending. But, you know, I think it's going to take a couple of months to, to really uh, to, to settle down. Sinead, we keep hearing about these pent up savings that people had a lot of time on their hands. They weren't going out. So maybe they were putting that money away. But are people feeling this day to day when we're talking about those cost of living hikes? Uh, and who do you think isn't feeling it right now? Are people being quiet maybe about the amount of money um, that they may have amassed over the past couple of years? Or, you know, is that is the sentiment out there that we have this money and we want to splurge? The, the, well, there is the money out there. Uh, the central bank's figures show that at its height, uh, people saved during the pandemic not voluntarily, it has to be said. They'd nowhere to go and nothing to spend the money on. But at one stage, there was 132 billion in household deposits. Now, that's tailed back a little bit as the spending has, has loosened out. That's far too much. That money is earning nothing. Um, and in fact, you'd be better off spending it than saving it because inflation is, beat, is eating into it. Um, so, so really, what's happening is that people are fearful because they hoard money when they're afraid of what's coming down the line. And we're still not out of this yet. Nobody really is too certain what's going to happen this year or next year. So you can't blame households and families for saying look I know I've got big bills over here but I need this money I need it liquid I need to access it in case something goes wrong again in case my job comes under pressure so people 
quite sensibly have a dichotomy. An economist wouldn't agree mm. with that, but but they have that that kind of dual-edged uh, uh, thinking about it. Um, when it comes to bills and and uh, inflation, uh, energy is absolutely the big one. If uh, energy costs have gone up twenty seven percent in the last year, mm -hmm. if you strip that out completely out of the basket of goods, our inflation rate wouldn't be five and a half percent, it should be nearer three. So it's a huge thing, mm -hmm. but shows no sign of lessening anytime soon. Well, this is the question about that. And, and I know, um, you know, from a p political point of view, you know, there are questions of the government. Can you do more to help people in these straitened times? Um, what, what can be done to actually tackle the cost of living? Um, aside from that hundred euro off the energy bill, which when b people will have bills landing on their, their doorsteps today and into their inboxes and, you know, it mightn't make much of a dent at all. And when they're looking down the line at the rest of the year being quite similar, um, how is it really going to help them? So are there measures that, that, that could be done, like removing, you know, VAT or, or lessening it on, on mm. energy bills, for example? Well, certainly, if the government so wished it could reduce VAT for a temporary period of time, we, we heard that call from various charities and uh, interest groups today, and we heard it raised in the doll. Pascal Donoghue and, and the Taoiseach appeared to be on, on the back foot for a period of time in the doll today. They were coming under fire from all quarters with regards to what opposition TDs feel is a, a failure to act quickly enough. The, the five euro budget of last October seems a long time away now and we're in a, a very different scenario a scenario where we're going to see prolonged inflation it's expected it will level out and drop a bit towards the end of the year but it'll average about four and a half percent this year it'll be well above pre-pandemic levels going into next year so the government will hope that a growing economy will be able to facilitate that that we will see wage growth that meets mm. the rising cost of living but in some ways, their hands are tied. In other ways, their hands aren't tied. The, the other thing the central bank said today and pointed out was that they probably will see a surplus. The public finances will be repaired by next year, all being well. So they're certainly in a much stronger position in terms of resources and money sloshing about than they thought they might be. So there certainly will be pressure on the government to do more. If they yeah. can put 100 euro towards uh, an electricity credit, they, they could equally put two or 300 euro towards an electricity credit. It will be argued. So if this is a temporary thing and they are assured by the centre bank and so on that it is temporary and will come out of this at some stage soon, then the pressure will mount for them to perhaps take temporary action. Yeah, um, just on that, you mentioned wages there, and this is something that uh, Leo Vradker alluded to yesterday. If employers can do it, <laughs> you're smiling and you're going, please, I wish he didn't say that. Is that what you're saying? If employers can do it, you know, give your employees a pay rise. Um, how, what, what did you think when you heard that? Do you think that's a reasonable uh, suggestion? I mean, Pamela? in some sectors, perhaps it is reasonable. I was chatting to a couple of other business owners today about their perspective, and there are some talented people who just completely moved sectors during the pandemic. You know, they changed their lifestyle, they moved countries, they moved home, and to get that talent back, it's going to take more than wages. You know, it's it's how their lifestyle has changed and how you attract talent in isn't just a salary. You know, it's the country you live in. If the rent is high, it's not just about increasing that. So I think that that was, uh, I mean, it, to me now, it wasn't the answer. It shouldn't have been what he, what he said because it's not for every sector, especially when the supports are dropping for a lot of businesses now that they can't afford to increase the salary, especially when everything else is going up. Yeah, there's also the danger, isn't there, with if there are rising wages to meet a rising cost of living, you have a situation 
where that can spiral as well, Richard. Yeah, look, we, we all can uh, relate to what happened in the 70s and 80s when you, know, you had inflation and you had wages chasing inflation, which gave rise to further inflation and you were in that uh, spiral. Um, and obviously, you know, we're in a, a monetary union, so you, we don't even have the, some of the levers that we would have had back in the 70s and, and, and into the 80s. So I think, you know, uh, certainly the people that we'd represent have, you know, they've, they've had come through a very difficult time. And, and actually, we were out meeting and greeting with, with businesses there the last couple of weeks. And, and, you know, some were saying, you know, that they, they might just have to close their businesses they're it, they're in that kind of vulnerable situation so they're not in the space they're not they're in the space of, of, of pay rises. They, 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 their their whole thing is how do they keep their businesses you know uh, in situ so that basically you know when when the spending does increase that they're in a position to to take advantage of that they're certainly not in that position now i can i can assure you there's there are certainly some companies in this country who can afford to give pay rises though who've done very well out of this pandemic mm. and can afford to pay their staff better when you look at you know the cost of living and even with a rate wage rise it might not meet that inflationary hike that we've seen Sinead. There's a, there are loads of companies the problem is that those companies are feeding into our GDP figures which are set to grow over 20% over the next 36 months that is completely out of whack with the rest mm. of Europe of itself that's inflationary if you pay Googlers and Intellers who are already among the highest paid workers and you pay them an extra 10% because you can and you, you have the facility to do it and you've done very well in the pandemic. What does that do for the rents that they're paying, the houses they're looking for, the prices they're paying for other goods? So it, it's a kind of a chicken and egg thing with inflation. And, and this is why the European Central Bank tries to hit it at 2%. That, that's the kind of the sweet spot, the Goldilocks thing. We're running at 56 5.7% at the moment. Like that is just not sustainable. And if you add extra wages onto that, and I'm all for people getting extra money where that's possible. Well, that's what people at home will be but saying. Look, I mean, everything when, you're goes up. About this, when you're talking about this inflation, my, my monthly salary just doesn't cut it. Yeah, and, and you see, as people are paying more of the money uh, on the needs rather than the wants, they get very dissatisfied by that. So if a big chunk of your money now is going on your electricity bill, your gas bill, your food, who wants to spend on that? We want to spend on luxuries. We want to go out again. We want to do nice things. And, and people notice that imbalance and they get very disgruntled over. So they go to their employer and they say, give me more money. And the employer, um, you know, is saying, well, we can't afford to do that because we haven't caught up yet and we're, we're not quite there. So, so it can be, like growth is good. I heard the Tanishta on, on the radio this morning saying growth is good. Yes, but, but there comes a tipping point where it's not good or it's too fast uh, and, and that has to be managed. Just to make sense of this, you know, consumer uh, spending being the key driver in this current boom, if you like, we're seeing, or this, you know, this this economy taking off like a rocket, mm. which I think, you know, was something that the government were saying late last year. Um, is that consumer spending there when we're not getting as much bang for our buck? I mean, that's the question, isn't it, Richard? Well, you know, as Sinead said, there's a lot of there is a lot of pent up uh, cash, and you know, there, but there is still uncertainty. I think when that feeds into in, into the economy, into the consumer facing economy, I think it, it'll you know it'll certainly help sustain a lot of those businesses. 
But you know, th there is a, a two-tier economy here. We, we, you know, we, we have the, the uh, multinationals, we have those large corporates, mm. um, but the experience of a lot of the indigenous, uh, and particularly you know, those in retail and hospitality is quite different. Uh, and they've, they've had a very different experience over the last two years during the pandemic. So we do have this kind of uh, two-speed two, two economy. And it's, it does remind me of you know, when we were in the, uh, in the, the, the financial crisis, um, you know, 10, 10 or 12 years ago. Again, we, we experienced that where, you know, one part of the economy was doing okay, thank you, but the other part of the economy was, was really struggling. So I think there, there are different solutions, obviously, for, for, you know, but at the same time, as, as Sinead is saying, people who are earning good money can pay those kind of rents and, and that is putting a big squeeze on, on the employees yeah. that uh, other businesses need a, a to. Couple, to a couple of have. tweets in on that about, you know, it, it being there being a bit of a split there. Someone says that electricity benefit is going to every family, including mm. the very wealthy people who won't maybe even notice that bill coming in this month. And also that retail and hospitality sector workers are well long overdue a pay rise. Mm. Um, so, you know, there, there, you are, there, there are people that, really feeling it. the pinch out there as well. The 100 euros that we're all getting, the 113 euros 50 we're all getting, um, will amount to about 4% of the average energy bill. And that's if prices don't increase any further. So let's not get too excited about what we're being given here. The problem with any kind of helicopter money, which is what this is, is that it is inflationary. How many people out there, Claire? Just, just behaviour, right? Get that 100 quid off their bill and suddenly think, oh, leave the immersion on a bit longer. I'll put on the heating an hour early, you know, because that's what we well, do. Maybe, maybe it's inflationary. Would you feel like that in your business? I mean, like we're talking about the rising, we're talking about the energy costs. Like that, that is a big impact on business, doesn't it's it? Huge impact. And I think, yeah, I mean, there is a natural feeling of, oh, a bit of extra cash in my pocket now that I've got it. But yeah, I think obviously when you're in business, the, there are more costs and that would probably wouldn't make a dent for a lot of people at the moment, especially with the other supports slowly, you know, being reduced and pulled away at the moment. Yeah, which also, you know, feeds into that argument of that payment being targeted at the people who do need it most. Well, that is all we have time for on this topic. My thanks to Pamela, to Richard Sinead and to Paul. And coming up after the break is a time we said goodbye to single sex schools. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. According to the 2020 Global Education Monitoring Report published by UNESCO, Ireland has the second highest percentage of single-sex schools in the democratic world. 
Why is gender segregated educa education so common here? And should we reassess whether this is the best way to educate our kids? Well, in studio to discuss this is former principal and spokesperson for education for the Labour Party, Aona Reardon, lecturer of law in NUIG, Larry Donnelly, parenting journalist for the Irish Times, Jen Hogan, and via Skype tonight, principal of Alexandra College, Barbara Ennis. Uh, but first tonight, our Southern correspondent, Paul Byrne, went out on the streets of Cork to hear your views. I suppose the one school would do marry at the one would do my, wouldn't it? We all went together, didn't we, when we were going to school? What do the lads learn, what do the girls learn, do you think, from, from the co-education? <clears throat> Very little, I'd say. Very little. There's something around the seg segregation between boys and girls that I think can be... I think it's good to help them develop personal relationships and stuff like that and even respect for one another um, across different genders and stuff. I have a boy in secondary school, in Ballincollig Community School. Um, yeah, he's happy out there and I think it's good that they're mixed. If you're in an all-girls school, you'd be a bit more shy and nervous to be around men, but like a lot of my friends would have been boys in school, so like you wouldn't have been afraid of men in a, in a kind of term of sense. Interesting views there from Cork. Jen Hogan, your own kids went to same-sex or single-sex schools, both primary and secondary, yeah. um, but you're not necessarily in favour of them. No, and it's no slight on my children's schools. In fairness, they're really happy there, but it w wasn't my... It was more because that's the circumstances, the local schools or single-sex schools, both the primary and the secondary, and the, the primary was baffling to me because I myself went to a mixed primary school but the local schools are single sex and so I sent them there because that was a local school and you have to take logistics and practicalities and all those sort of things into account but by far I'd prefer if they were going to a mixed school. And why is that? Do you think um, you know your children would have got a more rounded education, more diverse views, um, boys and girls sitting next to each other, a broader view of life if I they think, were mixed? I think so. I think it's very abnormal really. Um, I just the whole idea of actually a parent said it to me today single sex schools are relevant to single sex worlds we don't live in a single sex world and this whole idea of sending our children to school with only their sex you're kind of you're entrenching that difference between them the sexes from a very very young age it doesn't it just doesn't sit well with me I think we, you know we, in the world we live in where men and women are mixing all the time we should be preparing them for that there should be a normality there should be a building of mutual respect and understanding of each other from a very young age and continuing it through the teenage years as the as that changes as those challenges to both genders change but instead we were keeping them totally focused on, on on being with their own gender the whole time and you know and I was looking at kind of the stats around this nearly one in five primary school children go to single-sex schools and a third mm. of secondary schools are segregated do you want to see that change well yeah but just to put my own cards on the table I mean my dad taught in an all-boys school for 30 years all my brothers went to Chanel and Kulak which is all boys and I was a principal of an all-girls school so I understand the arguments but however we are unusual in the European context in fact in the global context 17% of Irish primary school children mm -hmm. go to single gender schools so we do tell children or 17% of our children that they are different because they're boys or girls at a very early age they need to go to a different building they need to go into a different gate and that becomes so their gender becomes quite yeah, real for them. You were principal in one such yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, yeah so, I was. Like, yeah. how did you sell it? Or, well, like, you must well, have seen the benefits, or did you? you, you when you get a job in that school, you, you go with what the school uh, asks you to go with. But in terms of second level, we're quite unusual as well. One third of our second level uh, uh, schools are single gender. Now, the Department of Education
Nation actually haven't given sanction or recognition to a new single gender school since 1998. So it's actually for almost 25 years it has been the de facto uh, policy of the, of the department only to recognise um, uh, co-ed education. So okay. what we're dealing here with, is with a legacy issue. And it would be the influence of, uh, of various religions who, 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 who had that feeling that genders were needed to be segregated. So we are unusual in, in, in the European context. Uh, I think we have to, in the new debate about gender equality, although I've been writing about this for about five or six years now, we need to have an evaluation as does it stand up to scrutiny anymore and I think certainly at the primary level it really doesn't at the second level there's probably different dynamics going on there but I think uh, we should we, we should probably continue with what the Department of Education started 25 years ago and try and phase out um, you know segregated uh, education so we have a, a more gender equal uh, education system. Okay uh, Barbara Ennis uh, phase out segregated uh, uh, education what do you think of that idea as a principle of an all-girls school? Well, I can understand the argument and um, I wouldn't be completely against it. However, I'd like to make a couple of points about my own school, which make it stand out as being unique and not like any other all-girls school. I mean, I don't know how many people realise that uh, our school was uh, founded on the principle of allowing women to earn their own living in 1866 mm -hmm. when they were completely denied that. And um, it's always had a feminist agenda. It's always promoted uh, confidence and the way in which girls learn is very different to the way in which boys learn. And there's a certain point in a student's life, a girl in particular, where she realizes I can be whoever I want to be or I'm not going to succeed. And it's very important to have really different and powerful role models in school for girls so that when they go out into the world, they're able to stand up and be whoever they want to be, I, from a fire eater at the top of Grafton Street to a professor in Harvard in law. Okay. So are, are you talking about past pupils there, equally. Barbara? Are you talking about past pupils um, there? I'm talking about past pupils, but I'm also talking about current pupils. Okay. You know, the kinds of things that they say to me are that they love the school because of the wonderful sense of community, the fact that there's a great authenticity in the school. They're encouraged to say whatever they want to say, as long as it's not in any way impolite or disrespectful. So they're, they find their voice. And in mixed gender schools, sometimes girls can be unintentionally blocked from learning. And uh, this doesn't tend to happen in our school. Right, tell us uh, about I know it that. Can that's, that's an interesting perspective that maybe, you know, not everyone, who, a girl who goes to a, a mixed gender school might feel they're, they're blocked from learning. How so? Okay, so boys love speed and they love accuracy in answers and getting them like that. Whereas girls thrive much more in a Socratic dialogical kind of environment where the learning is gradual and it comes about by discussion and consensus and an understanding, a deep, deep understanding of, of what the context is and what, you know, what meaning there is attached to whatever it is they're mm. studying. Now, from my, my own point of view, you know, I taught Irish and English and I would have had very lively debates in my class and there was never anything off the agenda ever. And we had the most incredible discussions okay. uh, in my classroom. Right. But the other thing, just finally, I want to say about STEAM. 
So girls can be unintentionally blocked from going on to study physics, chemistry, applied maths, because the boys may be speedier at answering in the classroom. And that's when they kind of step back and they say, oh, look, I'm not able for this. All right. But actually, if they yeah. give the chance, yeah, they no, can. Interesting, um, interesting to hear mm. that. But you, as a principal of an all-girls school, like you, you, you may be coming from that perspective that uh, a mixed school um, principal may disagree or people who go to, go to that school. Because it is interesting to hear about the different ways of learning. And also, I suppose, maybe the different values. Like, what did you feel, Larry, as somebody who went to an all-boys school? Um, because there is an emphasis on that, I think, even more than the, the all-girls, insofar as what happens in all-boys school, how they're taught about life, how they're taught about respecting women, um, and whether those conversations you know, occur properly um, and it's the right environment for them. Well, I, I, can, I can certainly say that in my own uh, secondary school, Boston College High School, a uh, Jesuit school in the city of Boston, uh, those conversations certainly did go on because um, there is, I suppose, this uh, perception that perhaps we were going into an all-male atmosphere. Uh, the reality was an awful lot of our teachers were women. Uh, uh, and they were women who taught us with, with, with uh, you know, all the values, et cetera, uh, that, we needed to, that we needed to learn at, at that young age. And what I, what I worry about in this debate, uh, and again, I'm reticent to say boys learn this way, girls learn this way. I think we conflate issues. I think we conflate issues about the influence of religion. I think we conflate the issue, a big issue in Ireland, which is that parents don't have enough choice period, which is a separate issue altogether. Um, but what I would say is that there is a significant cadre uh, of young boys and young, and young girls and young men and young women who the reality is, for them, a single-sex school is a better learning atmosphere. There is not a one-size-fits-all approach to that. And my fundamental point is, for me, at second level, and again, I went to, at primary, I went to a mixed school. For me, at second level, it was better. A single-sex atmosphere, I found, was a better, more conducive learning atmosphere. And indeed, a lot of the then girls, now women who are my friends, they went to single sex schools. And one of the, some of the conversations we'd have now as adults laughing back would, would be to say, we saw each other on the weekends, we socialized, we did all that. We could go to school on our own. We don't want to see you all the time, those sorts of things. And we had really valuable learning experiences in that context. It was part of our identity. Okay. And that's not to take away from any of the issues that have been brought up, but I think single sex education can work for lots of students. And to say it should be done away with altogether, I think is a step way too far. Um, you've made a link, on between sort of single-sex uh, education and, and toxic masculinity. Mm. Um, mm. Where do you see it something, well, look, you know, I, coming, I think coming in, in, a, say, an all-boys environment? Yeah, okay, if we're talking about itself? Yeah, if we're talking about gender inequality or toxic, toxic masculinity, it's probably unfair to make a, an absolute link between one facet of Irish society and, uh, and that. But I think we have to be realistic about what are the most gendered environments that we have constructed? And these are contrived constructions. These all-boys all or all-girls environments. We don't have all-boys or all-girls creches or early, learn, early learning environments. We don't have all-boys or, or all-girls universities or further colleges of education. It's only in primary and secondary schools where we contrive this, uh, uh, this scenario where they must be separate. So in that environment of, of an all-boys environment, I know just from, from, from my own experience what guy, guys can be like together, I think it is, you are more likely to tackle toxic ma ma masculinity 
in a in a gender equality or a based scenario and i was i take issue with some of what's been said i mean i think we can absolutely trust the teachers of ireland to deal with whatever student is is reluctant to come forward or is shy or is not is not speaking or or, or you know fulfilling their potential in, in in the classroom i'd also say this much about gender stereotypes it has been shown that in certain schools that have uh, of one gender or the other, or other, it does lead to you know type uh, re restricted gender uh, subject choice. Uh, that a wider variety of, of subjects aren't available because it's an all girls school or all boys school. There are some girls schools and boys schools who are rejected and say it's not the case in there. But in in the general say sense, it has been the, it has say been the case. In the area of like art and drama, and art or drama, home economics, areas might yeah, be home economics for boys, school, uh, STEM, boys STEM subjects for, for for girls, sport, etc. Do you find that from your experience? Mm -hmm. Was that the case? Has that been the case with your kids? I think I think Ian's uh, raised those points are really relevant. I think the whole idea of, of subjects, but also extracurricular activities and, and kind of the, the whole ethos of schools largely it revolves around the gender of the children who, who attend because there tends to be more demand. And if you're looking at single sex schools, we have moved to a point where we're championing girls to do STEM, to do activities that were traditionally associated with boys, to, to, to aim for careers that were tr traditionally associated with men. But we haven't yet really maybe appreciated the value of the carer or caring roles or anything like that. In, in men or, and in boys, we, we haven't done the reverse. We don't champion activities and interests that are traditionally associated with girls and boys. So we haven't actually managed to do that. And we're not likely to do that if we keep our schools separate and apart like that. And I have six sons. So even anecdotally, I can tell you they're so different. I don't, I don't actually accept what Barbara's saying there in terms of boys learn a certain way and girls learn a certain way. They're, that's kind of perhaps just it's stereotyping. What about this idea that you hear that, you know, um, parents may opt for a single sex school for their daughter mm. because girls do better in single sex schools. And I have a girl and she went to a single sex school and again it was the same reason it was because it was a local school and that's why she went there and I can understand that there you know there is research showing that girls do better in single sex schools but but school academically in single sex schools but school is about so much more than education and it is that only environment where we have the sexes separated in that way and, and it's it's during the formative years that are so important that, that they learn about each other they learn the challenges of each other. It is more complex. I do think misogyny and, and toxic masculinity, it's much more complex than just the schools and we can't think And the think issue of academic prowess that. amongst all-girls schools, it doesn't take into account that a lot of uh, all-girls schools tend to be middle-class areas and disproportionately yeah. fee-paying schools are uh, single gender. Okay. So it's not just about, you know, the, the gender issue about uh, performing better academically. It's also about the, you know, the There's a the, lot more at play. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, we got a tweet in here. Segregated education is an anachronism. Um, perpetrate gender stereotypes that is a legacy of religious control of education. Larry, what do you make of that? Uh, uh, well, I don't agree. The, the, the first point I would make is that the, the statistics are all over the shop on this. I, you know, you'll find statistics to say just about anything uh, when it comes to, to uh, single-sex schools or mixed schools. They're all over the place. Uh, so I wouldn't put a huge amount of stock uh, into that. Uh, in terms of the, 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 it being a relic of religion, uh, the reality is in the United States, the growth in, in, in single-sex schools and the growth in demand among parents for single-sex schools has been extraordinary. 
necessary. And that has been in the public school system in the United States, which is not faith-based whatsoever. And intriguingly, it has been most pronounced in areas of social and economic deprivation, particularly in areas of the urban United States, where parents feel that this is a better option for some of their kids. And I think that the point I just need to keep coming back to is this is not for everyone. Obviously, there are, there are experiences for every child and every young person that they can okay. thrive in, but it shouldn't be banned. That's my real, my real difficulty is why should we at, ban? At schools reflecting wider society and being diverse places and being places where conversations can be had about, about the, the way society should be, shouldn't a boy be sitting next to, next to a girl as they would when they maybe go on to college, as they might in the workplace, as they may in life in general, instead of it being this, this artificial environment essentially that may suit a child if they're a little bit shy around the opposite sex, but for the greater good, it's not ideal. But, but it may suit an awful lot, especially at, at that age. And I can speak from experience here when I went to, to secondary school. Uh, at that tender age, at that awkward age where there's lots of stuff going on uh, for boys and for girls, certainly from my point of view, it was a better experience. And let me put it this way. We go to school six hours a day, about 180 days a year. We're around the opposite sex all the time. I, I mentioned before, we're taught by teachers of the opposite sex in, mm. in single-sex boys uh, and girls' schools. that's just one teacher. And then, that's and then, one woman in a class of say 30 boys. The, the, that, that's, that, that may be true, but what about outside of school, where in, indeed, in my own experience, we fostered relationships between all girls and all boys' schools. There was all sorts of activities. Okay. Outside of school, hours, it was the mere six hours, again, when we're going through a very difficult stage, a tri trying stage, for some of us, not for all of us, but for some of us, we preferred to be segregated for those six hours when we could focus strictly on learning and some of the other distractions or other things that come about because of that tender age weren't in the equation. Okay, uh, just on this on a very practical basis, if we're looking at sort of changing the culture around that and having more mixed schools, mm. you're saying that's been something that the Department of Education have been thinking about now for 25 but years. They, but they don't give any, any uh, recognition to any new school that is uh, single gender. So, so what, what we were suggesting in the Labour Party is that perhaps we need a period of time to allow for schools to have these conversations themselves in their own school communities. Every dynamic and every community is Are you saying that schools that are currently single-sex uh, single schools should should maybe look at mixing with the local, I, local girls school, yeah, mixing with I, the local I, I boys think school I think the Department of Education needs to create their environment over, over a period of time, and we could be talking about 10 years, maybe 15 years, to have an ambition that particularly at primary level we would, we would phase it out. I don't think there's any argument at all. I understand about the, the dynamics of second level being slightly different. But look, we've gone along, there was a time there was an argument that African-Americans were, you know, uh, learned better by themselves, or in the Irish context that travellers learned better by themselves, or that children with disabilities learned better by themselves. We have we have an obsession in Ireland with segregating children yeah, on the basis of religion, on the basis of gender, on the basis of income in certain circumstances. So what I would say is that I think it has to be a very, very, very uh, you know, robust argument for keeping the children separate. Doing it on the basis of gender doesn't stack up, but what the department can do is create the environment that encourages uh, schools uh, to come together to think about how they can uh, uh, foster a future together in a, in a, in a, in a gender equal way, because this is the argument now about, about the argument about gender equality and how best can we do it in, what, in, in our school communities, in that school environment, in that learning environment together. Somebody makes that point, people learn differently, it's not boys or girls, people learn mm. differently, so the environment 
doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily better for one gender or another. Jen, in terms of demand that's out there, you said you've spoken to parents. Mm. Um, what 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 is the demand versus the supply? You you say you didn't have a choice. You'd mm. like to have had that choice. That's exactly what a lot of parents came back to me and said today. They said those who, for the majority of parents, particularly parents of boys who went to all boys schools, again there is this different acceptance of single-sex schools for girls because of the whole um, idea that they can perhaps achieve more in a single-sex school. But largely for the parents of boys, it was lack of choice. Or or they chose the school based on academic performance and league tables and things like that. They looked at the school versus another school in the locality, but it was not driven by gender. It was nothing to do with gender. And certainly it wasn't their preference to have a single-sex school. The vast majority wanted co-ed. Even people who had been to single-sex schools themselves, both um, men and women, both came back and both said, that they would prefer a mixed school for their own children. But again, it was practicalities, logistics, and and, and suppose ideas about the, the options that were available yeah, to them. And, and it's something that we know uh, won't change overnight, but I think it's important to, to have that conversation. We'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Aon, Larry, uh, Jen, and to Barbara, who joined us via Skype. And coming up after the break, uh, we speak to Una Ring, who following her own horrifying experiencing experiences campaigning now uh, for legislation to criminalise stalking. Back. Justice Minister Helen McEntee told the Dáil today that she plans to publish a bill before Easter that would include new legislation to criminalise stalking as a standalone offence. Joining me in studio is Fianna Fáil Senator Lisa Chambers, who first introduced this bill alongside uh, co-founders of Stalking Ireland, Eve McDowell and Una Ring. Well, earlier I spoke to Una. I began by asking her about her own experience. I was stalked by an, an ex-colleague of mine. Um, they went on for five months. Uh, he ended up being arrested after trying to break into my house. He had a rope, duct tape, a crowbar, a lock-picking device. He had a dildo strapped himself with a condom on it, and his intention was to break in and rape me. Um, when I was being stalked, there was nothing online. I had tried um, different different um, browsers, and I couldn't find anything. So Eve McDowell uh, contacted me after my case and we wanted to set up a website. And we, we did set up a website, stalking.ie, and it, it's very informative. There's a how to report it um, for family members, how to support somebody who is going through it. Um, and I suppose the next step for us then was um, the legislation. Lisa Chambers contacted us and she was very interested in, in getting the laws changed because there is no crime of stalking in Ireland at the moment. There is a crime of harassment, but there's no um, stalking offence. And that's what we needed to change because the end game of the two is very, very different. Um, for harassment, the end game is just to, I suppose, upset the person's life um, and make things difficult for them. But in stalking cases, the end result is rape or murder. That's that's the end game for the perpetrator. So we need we need stronger laws, we need clearer laws, and we need them in sooner rather than later. Uh, how do you feel now about your own case, which you've highlighted um uh, there and the situation, as as everyone may recall, that CCTV footage from outside your home after months of harassment mm -hmm. and threats and stalking when it came to that point um, involving your stalker, 52-year-old James Steele. He was jailed for five years. Um, are you suffering the after effects now of that ordeal, Una? 
Yeah, I am. And I, I think it always will be because it does live with me every day. Like uh, he's serving his time, but I'm serving mine as well. Una, are you worried about your own safety uh, when James Steele is released from prison after he served three years? Yeah, I am because there's nothing in place. Like there's nothing the guards can do. I was fortunate that they were outside my house uh, the night he came, but like moving forward, they, they won't be able to do that. Um, and there is a, a lifelong no contact order. He will be on probation. Uh, he will be on the sex offenders register, but there's nothing really to stop him coming into a car, getting into a car and driving down. Um, so I actually don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what his mindset will be. And um, so it's just back to looking over my shoulder again. And uh, you know, what advice would you have for people who may be watching tonight who are currently being stalked, um, being harassed and feel powerless about it? Well, I would say go to the guards, um, make a report, document as much as you can of where you see the person. And if, if they're messaging you, screenshot messages, print them up, bring them with you. Um, I was very fortunate in the support that I got from the guards, but that doesn't always seem to be the case. So I would just tell them to insist on, on making a report and having a report taken. OK, Una, Una Ring, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And just to let you know, if you've been impacted by any of those issues um, covered, uh, you can contact helplines on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash helplines. Uh, Lisa Chambers, I want to talk to you a little bit about this. Um, Una very bravely told her story there at the time. I think everyone was quite shocked uh, about that case, uh, the footage that emerged from outside her home, uh, an unbelievably terrifying ordeal for her and for many other victims of stalking. Hard to believe that it isn't a standalone offence, where in places like the UK it has been for more than two decades. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I remember listening to Una and Eve's stories um, when they launched their campaign early last year. I was in the car driving to work, actually, and I was just so taken aback by their experience uh, and what they went through. And I realised that the law in this, in, this, in this space wasn't sufficient. So I got in touch with the, the two women and um, they've been incredible. I mean, they came out of their court case, that entire ordeal. They're still recovering from that. But they started a campaign to help other victims. Um, stalking has been a standalone criminal offence in Scotland, England and Wales for more than a decade. Uh, the Northern Ireland Justice Minister, Naomi Long, is already bringing through legislation in Northern Ireland to do the same thing. So we're, we are way behind. And it was recommended by the Irish Law Reform Commission to do this back in 2016, but it was never acted upon. OK, so stalking already is covered by existing law insofar as it's deemed as a, as a form of harassment or within the harassment bracket. How will this change help victims? What are we going to see? Yeah, so if we look to other jurisdictions where they've got this law in place, so take Wales, for example. So more than a decade ago, this law was enacted. If we take the period 2014 to 2018 in Wales, because of that law being a standalone offence, there was a trebling of reporting of stalking offences directly because of the law and a doubling of prosecutions of stalking offences. So there was a very, very direct impact. You legislate for it, you make it a standalone offence, you get more reporting and more prosecutions. So it's better for victims and it's safer for, for everybody. So the changes being proposed will include explicit reference to stalking as a criminal offence and updating the law around that. Stalking including watching or following a victim even when they're not aware they're being watched or followed. And, and a provision key to this is to allow a victim in very serious cases to apply 
to the court for an order to prevent the alleged perpetrator from communicating with them in advance of any trial? Because that, that's a terrifying thought as well for a victim in, it in these is. cases. I think for a victim to come forward and make a complaint is a really brave step to take and it's a big decision. So they need to be assisted and helped all the way along. A lot of the reports we get back, I think Una's case is unique in that the Gardaí were exemplary. They were fantastic. That's not always the case because the law in this area is quite unclear. Currently, if you're stalked, you have to try and get justice under current harassment laws. The word harassment doesn't really cover what happened to Una, it doesn't cover what happened to Eve McDool either. Um, and it, harassment is just, it's slightly different. It's a lesser offence in my view. Stalking, you'll find an obsession and a fixation on the part of the perpetrator. Very often a concocted, intimate relationship that doesn't actually exist, but does in their mind. And as Una pointed out, the end game is very different. Very often it can be fatal for the victim. And in Una's case, thankfully, because the guards were on site, it could have been a very different night uh, in that house. So it's really terrifying. Um, what we're proposing, I published a bill last September to criminalise stalking. Initially, the Department of Justice were not in favour of it. Uh, they tried to stop the bill progressing, um, but I pursued it in any event with Una and Eve by my Why side. Why was that? Their view at the time from the Minister and from the Department is that the harassment section in the legislation was sufficient, even though we knew it wasn't and we knew what other jurisdictions had done and, and the impact that it had. Um, I believe that events in the last number of weeks um, have prompted the Department to reconsider and they've reflected and changed their minds. And now Minister McEntee has met with myself, Una and Eve, just yesterday evening actually, and has agreed to progress our legislation. It will conclude in the Shannon in two weeks' time. Committee stage has been taken tomorrow. It'll be completely finished in the Shannon in two weeks and then it'll be over to the doll to do the second part of, of that, passing that the was, law. That was my question. Um, you know, big ideas here and, and clearly a help for, for victims involved, but how soon will we actually see this becoming a, a reality? So, as a member of Shannon Aaron, I can tell you that come the 9th of February, it will have passed all stages in that house. It then goes over to the Dáil to go through all stages again. Theoretically, it can be done in a, in a matter of weeks. Um, so it really will be over to the Minister for Justice and her team in the department um, to progress things on their side. We've done the groundwork, we've done the research, we've drafted the legislation, and I'm bringing it through the Shannon, so I'll have my work done at that point. Then it'll be over to the Minister to conclude uh, in the Dáil, but theoretically, in a number of weeks, it could be on the statute books if the, if the, the political will is there to do that. Yeah, and we must point out, you know, as Una was saying, Una and Eve launching this campaign because they wanted to see change because of their own personal experience, stalking.ie, that's their website. Um, you know, people who feel uh, affected by this, they can, they can go there and they can also, you know, go online, visit our helplines. Um, but that is it from us. My thanks to Lisa, all of our guests tonight from all the late team here. Good night. Do take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.